Well, the good news is human viruses cannot be spread by computers. It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 27th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. But this week I bring lots of germs. Lately I have been looking at a program called Beyond Compare. And the more I looked at it, the more I decided that its name is also a good description of how it works. Scooter Software describes Beyond Compare as a powerful, time-saving utility for comparing files and folders on your Windows system. Okay. To that, I would say you can also use your Lamborghini LP640 for the daily commute. Comparison is just the beginning. If you mirror files to a backup drive, Beyond Compare is a tool you will appreciate. Or if you ever need to compare, for example, an application's output with a previous session's output, it'll do that. Or if you need to make sure that files have not been added to or removed from a directory. And that's just scratching the surface. In reviewing how Beyond Compare works, I found a couple of truly amazing features. For one, the types of folders can differ. Beyond Compare can compare the contents of a regular folder or a folder on a network drive to a folder on an FTP site or to the contents of a zip archive. It sees that as a directory. And you're not limited to comparing just files and directories. You can compare the contents of files using a variety of filters. There is a data viewer to compare two output files formatted with rows and columns, the kind of thing you might get from a print output from a database program or from a spreadsheet. There's a hex viewer lets you compare the underlying data in the file bit by bit. There's an MP3 viewer, and yeah, MP3 files are sound files, but it, they call it an MP3 viewer, because you see the audio files metadata, and if you want, you can play the file at the same time. There's a picture viewer to allow you to compare two images, view the differences, and a symbol viewer that allows you to examine and copy embedded icons in files. And finally, a version viewer, if you're working with program files, executable files, DLLs, the dynamic link libraries, you can see information inside about the version of the application and the build number. And most people probably would be using Beyond Compare, at least initially, at its most basic. You know that I have a full backup. In fact, I have a couple of them. I have a full backup on removable hard drives. Those stay here in town, away from the computer but in town, and I have an online backup. If I need to get files back, there is some delay in either case. So I also keep a local copy of files that I'm working on currently. It's a hot backup. Those files live on a USB device that sits beside the computer. It's not a very good backup that way, because if anything happens to the computer, it's also going to happen, most likely, to that USB drive. But if I accidentally delete something and need a file back quickly, I can get it from there. So I've been using Beyond Compare to examine directories on the computer and then to copy new and changed files to the hot backup device. To start a comparison, it's very easy. You tell Beyond Compare two locations, two directories. Beyond Compare refers to these as left and right. There's no particular importance to being left or right. It's just a way to imagine, in a virtual world, physical locations. 
So depending on the number of files in your directories and on the method that you select to compare those files, the process will complete in just a few seconds, or it might take several minutes. And when you're done, there will be color coding to show you where the new, updated, missing, or orphaned files exist. At that point, you can choose how you want to proceed. Copy files left to right, copy files right to left, or synchronize the files. Make the contents of both drives the same. And maybe you're the cautious sort. Okay, then you can ask Beyond Compare to tell you exactly which files will be copied. In some cases, following the copy process, I find that there are files on the hot backup drive that are no longer on the main computer. These were probably temporary files that I've deleted on the main system, no longer need, but they were initially backed up to the hot backup device. It's quick and easy to tell Beyond Compare to eliminate those files from the hot backup. This is an application that will be very handy for computer programmers, people who need to compare builds of programs or need to compare output from those programs. But it's also the kind of program just a regular user can use in the same way I'm using it. Even if you have your hot backup on the same hard drive, that's less secure than having it on an external drive and far less secure than having it on an FTP site or some other off-site location. But even for people who want to just keep a hot backup on a local machine, this is a good choice. Several weeks ago, I started writing a piece that I was going to call Coping with iTunes Disasters. It eventually got retitled to Goodbye iTunes. Every time that iTunes reports that the iTunes library file, as an ITL extension, is damaged, I liked iTunes a little less. And when that happened eight times in about a week and a half, I decided that was just too much. Now, when that happens, iTunes can reconstruct the ITL from an XML file. It writes that XML file when it exits. The problem with allowing that to happen, though, is that all previous podcasts, although the files are still on the disk, no longer show up in the library. The only solution I found was to download them all over again. They couldn't be re-imported. That is hardly an elegant solution. So I ended up deleting both the damaged ITL file when this happened and the XML file, and then re-importing all of the files. As you might suspect, that takes a while. It takes a long while. It also means that I lose the load date for all the files. It gets set to the current date. I lose any playlists that I'd created. I lose any smart lists I'd created. So, after several years of enjoying iTunes on a Windows machine, I've dumped it in favor of an application that was built for Windows machines, Winamp. A bit of background on how we got to this juncture. You have an iTunes library with more than 20,000 files. You don't want to see a blank screen when you start the program. And I have to wonder, if a Microsoft program lost all of its references to every single file it had, every few days. Would there be calls for congressional investigations and perhaps calls for the execution of Bill Gates? Well, all right, that's a little bit of hyperbole. But I wonder why Apple is able to get away with things like this. The first thing I tried when my iTunes library kept disappearing was to get some support from Apple. I visited the Apple website, and I searched the support section for iTunes ITL Damaged. Three words. I expected to find something. I found nothing. No references. None at all. 
So then I wondered, is this something that has happened just to me? Am I the lucky person, the only one on the planet who has ever encountered this? I took that question to Google. iTunes, ITL, damaged. That query returned 1,000 web pages. Well, then I searched for just two words, ITL, damaged. That brought back 26,000 web pages. So it would seem not to be an isolated problem. And it also seems not to be specific to Windows implementations of the software. I found complaints back to at least 2004 from Mac users who suffered the same problem. The library files become corrupt. The music is still there, but you lose all of your playlists in fixing the problem. My next thought was to keep a backup of the ITL file. Seemed to me that a couple of backups plus the additional ones on my actual backup and the Carbonite backup, I've got four or five copies by the time you do all of that, that when iTunes loses its mind, I could just shut it down, copy one of the files from backup, and then I'd have to reimport any new selections since the most recent functional backup, but that turned out not to be very acceptable. And I couldn't always count on it either because sometimes the backup copy of the ITL somehow on its own, managed to become corrupt. So I decided the real long-term solution would be to use a better program. Now, I'm not sure how I could find a better program, because after all, Steve Jobs calls iTunes the best Windows application ever created. I thought about using the Windows Media Player, very quickly ruled that out, and then the other program that came to mind was Winamp. Although iTunes has a clean and understandable interface, I really can't use it if I can't depend on it. So I started the process of switching to Winamp. It's a Windows application. It's been around for about 10 years. It is now owned by AOL. The interface is a lot more cluttered than what iTunes shows me, but I've never had Winamp forget where all the music is. I used Winamp 10 years ago, liked it back then. The iTunes interface is cleaner. And that's really what attracted me to iTunes in the first place. That and the fact that I own an early iPod, so I had to run iTunes to synchronize with it. Winamp didn't recognize iPod devices in those days. I don't travel a lot now, so I don't use the iPod as much as I did at one time. And when I do need it, it already has plenty of selections loaded. So I really don't need iTunes anymore. And should I buy another portable music device someday? It wouldn't have to be an iPod. But it turns out that I don't need iTunes to move music onto the iPod anymore. Winamp's latest version includes the ability to load tunes to the Apple device. So I'll let iTunes stay, but I really don't need it anymore. I said Winamp's interface is cluttered. That's true, but it's also functional. In fact, it's more than that. Don't tell Steve Jobs this, because he's operating under the delusion that iTunes is the best Windows application ever written. Winamp is better than iTunes. After sorting out some of the differences between the two programs, I realized that Winamp is actually easier to use, despite the clutter. For example, if I want to play a playlist or a CD in iTunes, and at the same time sort through the library to find other music... In iTunes, the playback will stop at the end of the current selection once I've moved away from that playlist or CD or directory, unless I take the extra step of opening the CD, playlist, or directory in a new window. Winamp, by default, spawns a player function in the same window, and it continues playing music from that playlist or CD no matter where I roam in the library. 
If I want to start another playlist or another CD, I just double-click it, and it starts. That's pretty quick, easy, neat, and simple. Those are words that Apple likes to throw around. Searching turns out to be easier, too. Searching in iTunes requires that I select a column, for example, album title, artist name, or track name. And then the search that I conduct applies only to that column, and worse still, what I'm searching for has to be the first word in the name or title. I could create a smart list that looks inside names or titles, but that seems just clunky. I know, for example, that I have several CDs by Frank Zappa on my computer, and there is also a symphonic version of some Frank Zappa music. I will now pause for a moment while you gather a mental image of Frank Zappa symphonic music. Okay, it really does exist. Now, I don't recall the name of the orchestra, so how would I find it? In iTunes, I wouldn't find it. I just have to scroll through screen after screen until, hopefully, I recognized what I was looking for. Because Zappa isn't in the beginning of the title. It isn't in the artist's name. Essentially hopeless for iTunes. But in Winamp, I type Zappa into the search field and wait a few moments while the program looks. I see a list. The CD that I want to play is on that list. But I don't see Zappa anywhere in the name, the name of the artist, or any of the tracks. How did Winamp know? Well, the answer is simple. MP3 files have tags that contain additional information about the selection. In this case, Frank Zappa's name was carried inside the MP3 as the composer. And that's where Winamp found it. That gave me enough respect for Winamp that I really decided to start looking at it carefully. The screen, as the program installs initially, is divided into several sections, each with a specific function. And you can drag these pieces around, resize them, turn them on, turn them off as you see fit. Along the left side is a list of library items. For example, lists of local media, including audio, video, those that you have played the most, those you have added recently, those you have recently played, those you have never played, the ones you have rated highly, and a category I added recently, ones that have been added in the last day. Then there's remote media for audio and video. These are online. There are playlists, online services, a podcast directory with information about your subscriptions, the link to any portable devices that are attached, CD and DVD players, bookmarks, and history. Depending on what you select from that list, you'll see various other things elsewhere on the screen. So if I select audio, near the top there will be a player control. It also reports either the length of time the current selection has been playing or the amount of time remaining. The time remaining feature is pretty handy if you're using Winamp as a DJ. To the right of that, a section with an album cover if it's available. By default, it shows metadata about the selection that's playing. And then further to the right, the full playlist that's currently playing. Then there's a selection that shows genres, shows how many albums and how many tracks are in each genre. Now, what if you wanted to see more than one genre? You can't do that in iTunes, but you can do it in Winamp. Why might you want to see the counts for multiple selections? Well, you might want to see everything you have in folk, folk rock, folk country, and folk southern. Just try that in iTunes. Further down on the screen, track-by-track track information about all of the selections on the current CD or playlist. There is some additional summary information, total time, for example, and size of files, sometimes an image. 
If there are current news accounts about the artist, there will be links there, along with links to the artist's official website, if one exists, and to fan sites. There's a Now Playing tab at the top. If I select that, the display changes to show information about the artist, list similar artists, and offer a variety of items for sale, ringtones, for example, or additional CDs by the performer. You also find album reviews there and advertisements. That's right, advertisements. Even if you pay for the pro version. Pro version isn't very expensive. It's 20 bucks and it's a one-time fee. So if there's a sour note, that's it. But it's a very minor sour note. For one thing, I very rarely look at the now playing page. So I don't even really know that the ads are there. Winamp is clearly worthy competition for iTunes these days. If you're having problems with iTunes, or even if you're not, take a look at Winamp. Dark days for Sprint. Sprint is the poster child for poor customer service. I was a customer for several years. The company had great hardware, signals where I needed them, and good quality signals where I needed them. It was the customer service that eventually drove me away. Customer service made Attila the Hun look like the singing nun. Since I left Sprint for another provider, Sprint has merged with Nextel, and now the merged company is going to be cutting 4,000 jobs, closing 125 retail locations, because subscriber growth isn't what was expected. It'll be closing 4,000 of its 20,000 third-party distribution points, so you won't see as many Sprint Nextel stores in consumer electronics retailers. This is what happens when you treat your customers the way Sprint treated its customers. Sprint Nextel stock is down about 25% in recent trading following the announcement that it hopes to cut $700 million to $800 million a year in labor costs starting at the end of 2008. The company will book a charge in the first quarter covering severance costs. Didn't say how much. Sprint Nextel ended 2007 with 53.8 million subscribers as the company has changed from an organization with good gear and bad support to a company with relatively bad gear and bad support. When Sprint acquired Nextel in 2005, it created a system with incompatible networks. The result, not surprisingly, technical problems, lots of customer complaints. For a company that can't seem to provide good customer support in the best of times, that wasn't a good situation to be in. In nerdly news, I don't know about you, but I am continuing to sit on the sidelines of the Blu-ray HD DVD battle. Warner Brothers now says that it plans to go with the Blu-ray camp, and that seems to have put a hold on sales of HD DVD devices. Market research firm NPD says consumers bought 1,758 HD DVD players the week of January 12th. Okay, so how does that compare to the week before? Well, the week before it was about 15,000. Sales of Blu-ray players in the same week, about 22,000, and that's up from 15,000 the week before. Now, obviously, you can't make long-term projections based on one week's worth of results. But Sony and Sharp are both putting their marketing teams behind Blu-ray. Despite the imbalance the week of January 12, there is still no clear winner. So I'm just continuing to sit right here on the sidelines. Bidding for pieces of the RF spectrum that will be vacated by analog television stations in 2009 began this week. The players include Verizon and AT&T. Google is in there, too. Google is not expected to win any licenses. But Google has at least pushed the process forward in a way that could be a long-term benefit to consumers. It was pressure from Google that forced the Federal Communications Commission 
to force the big telephone companies to open wireless networks to equipment not controlled and priced by the wireless companies. Now, you might remember a long time ago it was illegal to attach something as simple as an answering machine or even a telephone to the telephone company's wires in your home or your office. The telcos said that unapproved equipment would wreck the network. What it would wreck, of course, was their profits. By opening the system to third parties, the FCC made it possible for us to have answering machines that cost $50 one time instead of $100 every month. Or you found that you could buy an extension phone for $10 or $50 or $100 in a style you liked with a one-time payment instead of $10 a month forever in whatever style the telephone company might have. The telcos were making the same dumb arguments 30 years later, saying that the equipment they didn't specifically design or approve would ruin their network. To me, that seems like Ford saying that Toyota automobiles would ruin the system of roads. Now, Ford might like it if only Fords were allowed on the road, but there's little logic in making such a rule. So, let's assume that Apple and other manufacturers of electronics are at least as smart as telco engineers. Those manufacturers are not going to create devices that cause the networks to catch fire and burn. Personal information about more than half a million J.C. Penney customers and perhaps another 100 retailers or so may have been compromised last October when a computer tape went missing. It was announced this week. GE Money handles credit card operations for Penny and some other companies said that the missing information includes social security numbers for about 150,000 people. Is this a hazard? Well, probably not. The data was on a backup tape that just went missing last October. There's no indication that it was stolen. It was supposed to be stored at a warehouse operated by Iron Mountain Incorporated. The company says the tape was never checked out, but it can't be found. No evidence of any fraudulent activity on the accounts involved. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, and sometimes a lost tape is just a lost tape. But GE Money is promising to pay for 12 months' worth of credit monitoring services for customers whose Social Security numbers were on the tape. Trouble is, you may have received a letter from them, and you may have thrown it away. The letters were mailed in envelopes with GE Money as a return address, and a lot of people, thinking it was some sort of credit card offer, simply threw them away. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 27, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Remember, check out the website www.techbiter.com and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Don't forget to wash your hands now. Bye-bye.